Welcome back to God's Brain. I didn't even mean to click on it yet, but here we are. We're back at it. We got three pages left to get rocking. Grown Man's Book Club. Let's crack it open. Let's get a fucking beer going because we don't drink a lot. But when we do, we're fucking toasting it right to you. That's what we're talking about, you slick motherfuckers. Now we're back at it. Before we fucking get cranking at this motherfucker, you gotta give me a second. Two minutes and 22 seconds into it, and we're taking our second fucking drink, you clock slick motherfucker. So brush your fucking ball sacks, and let's get into it. We last left off with a fucking police officer coming in and fucking driving Dick Rowan out to Cleaver's farm. We're going to start it off at page 77, last paragraph. Greensmith, the workman at the, Green, at the Dreamland Theater, testifies that a gang came up Greenwood, knocking on the doors and setting the buildings afire. Asking who the men were, Smith replied, police man, I guess. Smith said he was, and I reckon so, accosted to a group of 10 or 12 wearing what they call special police and deputy sheriff badges. Some had ribbons and some of them had regular stars. Smith had been mistaken about the deputy sheriffs. No one else mentioned their presence. And McCullough was severely criticized for keeping himself. And his man barricaded in the jail under until after the riot was over. 
in any event, this bunch, as Smith called themselves, relieved him on $50. He wound up at the First Baptist Church and later the ballpark before being released about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. O.W. Gurley's hotel was empty by men wearing khaki suits who warned Gurley, you better get out of that hotel because we're going, we're going to burn all of this goddamn stuff. Gunfire racketed Greenwood Avenue, causing Gurley to take cover under Durbar School at 322nd North Hartford Avenue. He abandoned this hiding place and surrendered when the school was set on fire. Whites, too, said police officers were among the arson squad, systematically torching the African-American neighborhood. Laurel Buck, whose father owned property in Greenwood, said a policeman stopped him at Cincinnati and the Frisco tracks on the morning of June 1st and kept him back while two other officers entered the building a short distance away from that. A few moments after they made their exit, smoke began to pour out. Laurel's father Ah You know how fathers get I J Book said a unformed officer stopped him from getting to a large brick building. He owned he told me that he, I didn't have any business to build buildings for Negroes to live in. The elder Buck testified six weeks after the riot. I went on and he stopped me again and I told and told me to keep out or I would get my head shot off. My building was not set fire that I could see it caught from adjoining buildings. These accounts of police or men who appeared to be police being chiefly responsible for the fires that burned Greenwood come with two cabins. First, none of the witnesses could or would have identified the police involvement, although several said they recognized the men. Second, each account was given after it had become known that most assurance policies would not be honored unless the owners could provide that the fire had swept through Greenwood did not result from the riot. But from a deliberate act such as police act at the direction of city officials, whether this influenced any of the testimonial is impossible to know. But the Bucks, Gurleys, Cleavers, and Bostick all had vested interest in convincing a court that the police acting in an official capacity burned their properties. That, in fact, was the purpose of the court case in which Gurley, Cleaver, Green, Gabe, and other tested, testified it was a lawsuit brought, brought by white businessman William Redfern against his insurance company seeking payment for his stores and movie theaters. Scores of lawsuits were filed in the wake of the riot. Most never went to trial, and the Oklahoma Supreme Court advisory ruling in Redford's v. America's Central and Surge Court issued on January 12, 1926, effectively ending all hopes of restoration, restoration for Greenwood property owners. For all the Warren 
in mayhem during these hours, none was more caverned than the murder of Dr. A.C. Jackson, a noted physician and surgeon, unarmed and absolutely no threat to anybody. Jackson was shot dead in front of his house, hands raised in surrender. I heard him howler and it looked up and saw him coming about 20 feet away from me or 30 with his hands up. And he said, here I am. I want to go with you or words to that effect, said Jackson's white neighbor, John Oplehan. The same John Oplehan who had tried to intervene in the 1912 municipal elections. I say to the fellows that Dr. Jackson won't hurt him or fit testified that fellows were seven or eight men who appeared in front of Jackson's home at 523 North Detroit Avenue shortly before 8 a.m. Oakland lived around the corner at 119th East Easton Street and been trying for some time to get law officers to the vicinity. I wanted to get some policemen to help me. The 73-year-old former police commissioner said, I thought I could stop the whole business, but I guess I was mistaken. At this time, the orphan... At this time, said Orphan, the fight was all over and had been for an hour and a half. There was no shooting at that particular time, but there was no Negroes to shoot at except Jackson and one old man that was sick. Orphan's testimony preserved in the state's archives is important to only because it is detailed. Garbling at some time is, but sometimes it is free of any real or perceived taint of self-interest although he tried to save dr jackson orphan was forthcoming and saying he tried to stop the arsonist who followed not out of concern for his neighbors but because he feared that the fire was spread to his own property and his house in fact was spared so he had no claim against the doubtful insurer and in the professed friendship with the city administration did not cloud his judgment of the handling of the crisis. Ophint said he called and sent for help for the, from the police, the sheriff, and the National Guard. No one arrived until long after Jackson was murdered and the five homes along Detroit had been looted and burned. They don't been burned down. Don't make no damn sense. I'm going to take a drink to that one. If you think I'm developing a little bit of an accent, it's because the alcohol kicking in. And I reckon we're going to have a good time finishing this chapter off with the last two pages. Orphan said two men in civilian dress shot Jackson, but that several others in the khaki uniforms were nearby. They put the doctor into the automobile and said they were going to a hospital with them. Orphan insisted he could not identify any of those in uniforms and seemed uncertain of their connection, if any, with the shooters. I probably knew some of them because I was well acquainted here, but I don't remember, he said. The excitement was pretty heavy, and I had as many things to think about. 
I couldn't remember who was in that party. The looters arrived soon after, a hundred or two. Strong said orphan women and children as well as men stealing everything in sight and having a good time as they did. Some were singing, he said. Some were playing pianos that were taken out of the buildings. Some were running vocals and dancing a jig, just having a rolling, good, easy, good time in a business which they thought was upright. The looters hauled off oceans of properties from African-American homes. They absolutely sat all the houses and took everything out. Pianos, vocalins, clothing, chairs, musical instruments, clothing of all kinds. Men, women, and children would go into the houses and fill up pillowcases, sheets, clothing, and they carried them out, carrying them away. Oakland said he talked three or four crowds of fellas out of setting a fire to the Negro home near his property by telling them them he will make no black movement back in. Telling them he'd make sure no blacks moved back in. I didn't know if I could make good or not, but I was going to try it, he said. But he could not hold off for a man to show up a little after 10 o'clock dressed in civilian clothes but wearing badges and claiming they have been ordered to destroy they ain't the word they used i don't remember the word he used but it was to the effect that they were to make the destruction complete oflin said one of the four was a red completed man called Brown, a policeman. Orphan was mistaken. The old gentleman could not or would not say with certainty. He was definite about one of the others, a bootlegger, roadhouse operator, an all-around bad actor named E.L. Cowboy. Long weed, Danley said he knew who the riot ring leaders were. He may well have been long in mind. It was long set orphan who was given the orders on Detroit Avenue that morning. When they called his name, I feared him because I had heard about him. Orphan said they threatened that when he came, he would fix them houses quick. And he did by noon. It was over. All about a handful of Greenwood residents have fled or been taken into custody. Most who remained were old or infirm or both. The National Guard reinforced from Oklahoma City had elsewhere controlled the district's perimeter and established an eerie order over the smoldering city. The shooting stopped and the fires died out, but the smoke and all the smell of death lingered. The destruction was not quite complete, but near enough. The black Wall Street of America laid in ashes. Barely one brick on the top of another from Archard Street to at least the Gurley Hill. Additions a half mile north. Greenwood Avenue, principal business district. 
in the Negro district in the mass of broken bricks and debris reported the next day's world only gas and water pipes bathe fixtures bed sets or other metal fixtures remain to mark the places where homes once stood the Negroes Residents remaining intact can also be counted on one hand. There was an undamaged business building owned by Negroes in the entire. There was not an undamaged business in the whole entire district. More than 1,200 buildings were destroyed. Those left standing with very few expectations were looted and vandalized. For whites and black alike, the scene called to mind the barbarity of World War I. The colored section of the town was wiped in a long line of hopelessness. The stupidful refugees fled northward from the burning town. The world wrote in a June 2nd editorial, the German invasion of Belgium with an awful consequence was no more justified or characterized with any greater cruelty. I watched this awful destruction from where I sat on the hillside, recalled one of Parsons' informants, unidentified, but probable. Mrs. C.L. Netherland. As I sat and watched my modern Ted bedroom and basement home burn to ashes, an old white man came by, addressing me as auntie, and he said, It's awful, ain't it? And offered me a dollar to buy my dinner with. <sighs>